0: ladies and gentlemen welcome to another episode of the light switch podcast today we have a guest all the way from los angeles california for the last seven years he's been one of our go-to business leadership speakers and he is without question one of the finest dressed people in america his name is seth mattison
1: We have a really specific focus helping high performing leaders, just like all of you, do one thing prepare for the future of work. I'm in it just to rewrite history, because I'm in the mood to label us the leaders of the leaders of the new school. You're never going to meet anybody who has more vision, more enthusiasm, Mr. Seth Madison. So let's get into this. Let's go. Let's go. What are the timeless leadership skills and competencies that are going to be most relevant, that I can count on, that will always be important? Barriers to entry have never been lower for entrepreneurs and individuals to contribute, to communicate, to have a say. A future maker is an individual who looks at the infinite possibilities of potential paths forward into the future and clearly identifies this is the path forward. They were doing it to create an elevated experience for the talent, for the people inside the practice in the business so that they could attract great talent, so they could keep great talent and so that ultimately they could create a competitive advantage in the marketplace by delivering a better experience to their clients experience the brand creates for its customers, it mirrors the experience leaders create for their employees. Leadership is about influence and how power gets used. And is it tightly held or is it distributed and allowed to flow so that you can ignite people in a culture around a movement? Fight to give that to your people. Fight to provide that for this community
0: so how are you man how's la treating you this summer
2: james all is well i uh i'm we're so happy to not be in the 115 degree desert heat uh, of scottsdale which is where we are the other part of the year so uh 75 near the beach sun is shining all is well in los angeles my friend
0: <laughs> that's great news the other day i was flying back into florida and this girl was was uh moving on to phoenix after she changed planes mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. 116 degrees every day. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that was possible. I mean, maybe only in London.
2: I mean, yeah, London, <laughs> London seeing 116. It, it Honestly, it's not, it's not every day. We spent last summer there and, um, you know it's it's intense but it's you know i grew up in minnesota and december january february march is like negative 10 in minnesota so it's really not that much different in terms of extreme you just you just sort of adjust your life so but i'm obviously we're very grateful to be in southern california now
0: you used to live in la full time didn't you
2: we did yeah we were in la full time and uh just a, a combination of I wanted a little bit more space, a little more room to roam and uh, real estate prices, taxes, et cetera. Uh, and we have a business partner that was building an office building in space in Scottsdale. And so the stars just sort of aligned um, from you know, just phenomenal, great real estate prices. Ta- the state taxes are about half of what it is in California and our business partner building a great building there. We uh, We felt like that could be a place we could put down roots. With that being said, uh, we have a, a media production side of our business as well that my wife runs, and that does require us to spend some time in Los Angeles. So we, we just got a, a small work live studio space in Playa Vista, which is you know, now known as Silicon Beach, and we got all the big tech companies right around us. And so uh, it's worked out well for us to be here for the media work and escape during the summer.
0: That's excellent. And how is how are things in Scottsdale? Do you feel as though that's finally a flourishing community for businesses?
2: You know what? That's a it's a great question. There it is a a hotbed for uh people fleeing California actually. Uh some of the statistics last year we learned from our our realtor was that uh almost 40% of new home buyers in Arizona are people leaving California coming to the state. Um, and so there's this big influx and what what what's coming with that is there's this big wave of entrepreneurs that are are coming there in fact, Steve Wozniak, who you know started apple uh he has his foundation there and and his his university Wazu and the Wazu Foundation is based in Scottsdale, and we're actually starting to build a relationship there and connect and a, a much of what they're doing is to sort of encourage. And build this growing, you know, uh, community of entrepreneurs that are starting to come out of California and into Arizona. So, you know, just in terms of the community that we've started to make there and the people that are there, uh, it's it's super, super vibrant and growing more and more every single day. I think it's going to be, it'll probably be, in my opinion, like the next Austin. You know, it's not going to be San Francisco. It's not going to be L.A., but it'll be a great second tier community. Uh, for, for entrepreneurs to be able to build and grow businesses.
0: I, I agree. I and mean, if Steve is there, there's definitely going to be some excellent restaurants. He is a true gourmand as well.
2: You know I, you know so i I didn't know that about him, but there are surprisingly just an influx of phenomenal new restaurants that are are coming into the scene i mean it's always been a bit of a hotbed from you know just spring break you've got great you know it it attracts great national and global events and golf tournaments and races et cetera. Uh, but even just in the last year since we've been there, everybody from Nobu to a number of a big restaurateurs coming out of New York and California are coming into the community. So it's – listen, it's been great. It just – you just need a little break from that summer heat.
0: So, Seth, let's get into your subject, which is The War of Work is your latest book. But you've been doing this now for about a decade, haven't you? Did we first meet at yeah. Baltazar years ago? Oh, my gosh, like that's two, right. <laughs> You're two years in.
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's right. Yeah, it, it, it's crazy
2: that it has already been. This will be 10 years in the business, you know, uh, at, at a clip of, you know, 50 plus events early on. And then now we do between 70 or 80, you know, live keynote uh, workshop type events every year. And um, 10 years is pretty remarkable. You know, when we were meeting, when I first started, I joined and sort of apprenticed under two bestselling authors named David Stillman and Lynn Lancaster, who had written a bestseller back in 2002, now almost 20 years ago. David has a
0: son called Jonah Stillman, right? That's correct. You know, I just did a deal for David about a month ago. Yeah.
2: That's phenomenal. Yeah, they're they're fantastic. And David has been, you know, he's a pretty remarkable example of a leader who has continued to evolve and adapt and stay on the the latest edge of of the research as, you know, these next new wave of generations continue to roll into uh, the workplace and the marketplace. When he started his company with his business partner, Lynn Lancaster, at the time, it was really just Gen Xers. They were sort of the new kids on the block in the 90s. And to think that now – 20 years later he has a book you know and is doing projects around his son's generation generation Z born between 96 and 2010 uh, is pretty remarkable so I, I you know they they gave me their the start and it was a remarkable experience because what it did for me is it, it it accelerated my path into the business you know it's not that people can't break into this business write a book and start to speak on their own but you know i joined a platform with these two authors that were they were already established they were already working with all of the biggest bureaus in the world and had big clients and so not only did I have access to research did I immediately have credibility speaking alongside them because we introduced interesting offerings into the marketplace of you know combination of speakers of boomers and xers and millennials speaking together which was sort of unique at that time in the in the mid to late 2000s uh i also was was having the opportunity to watch and learn how two world class speakers you know could communicate and deliver content uh in a variety of different audiences and how, how they made the connection and and how how could they be more persuasive so i you know i'm i'm studying the subject i'm studying the trends i'm getting access to category leading brands and i'm watching two world class speakers present and so it it really fast tracked my career and opportunities and david and lynn then sold that business in uh in 2013 so after four years of working together they sold the business and sort of went into semi-retirement and reinvention and it gave me an opportunity to launch on my own and when i did james i pivoted away from just thinking about generational dynamics And I I rebranded and started studying and researching trends under this umbrella of the future of work. And so today, everything that we do really revolves around one thing, and that's to help leaders prepare for the future of work. And it's been a six-year run since leading David and Lynn. And uh, thanks to great partnerships with people like you in this industry, uh, we've had an opportunity to chase chase this profession and the dream again to do this for a living.
0: While we're on the topic of that, let's talk to the younger generations right now about the importance of them finding their mentor as they graduate from university and get into the work field.
2: So, how important do you think that is? uh, So it's 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 so important. I mean that that was honestly for me that was uh, my 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 greatest ticket and uh, helped me fast track. I didn't come from from a family that had deep connections. I grew up in a very small rural community in Minnesota on a farm, fourth generation farm. And had you know a, a beautiful upbringing, but my parents were not people who were connected in the business community by any stretch. And so while in university and, and right out of university, I just I, I was lucky enough to have a few professors and a few mentors that I, I had naturally gravitated towards that you know sort of clued me in on that of seek people out and always look to add value in those relationships. you know even though you're younger uh, and you're, you're, you're less experienced in many ways, particularly with these younger generations and their knowledge around technology and the changes happening in the world is to don't ever discount the value that you can bring to a relationship, even in the, in the smallest ways. And, and I think why that's important is because, you know, and today now I, I, I'm, I'm the recipient of a lot of these emails and LinkedIn requests of, you know, people reaching out, looking for mentorship. And I try to do that where I can. But when people reach out and they're just like, oh, you know, I'd, I'd love to pick your brain. That, that, that term of I would love to pick your brain is just the absolute worst request you can possibly make, in my opinion.
0: It sounds very intrusive and rude.
2: It's just like, you know, it's like, yes, please let me take time out of my day to, you know, advise, consult, and give guidance um, f- for you for free. And, and and again, it's not that I don't look to do that for, you know, for, especially for young people that are coming up, but the way people often approach that is, uh, I think it's just so misguided, you know, any, any way you can, you can lead with value again, even as a young person of like, if you do just a little bit of research on an individual, find out what they're, maybe what they're working on, where they work, the industry, maybe there is something, maybe there's a connection you can make just by the attempt of trying to lead with value instead of coming right with like, you know, can I, can I buy you coffee and pick your brain? I think you're going to be much more effective in, in being able to start those relationships, and um, that's a much more effective strategy. A, but B, to your point, starting out, uh, mentors will be the key to your success because not only are they, are, are they going to you know teach you and 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 give you guidance around all of the pitfalls and mistakes that they've made, but they also you know more than likely have built relationships over the years if they know someone who knows someone that might be able to help you find your way. So it's critically important for those younger generations coming up.
0: You don't talk about communication through the ranks anymore and I know you, you did start in that talking about millennials and that's kind of when you were a lot younger, but today what's the what's the Seth Madison elevator pitch? For your keynote speeches. <laughs> so it, it, it does it does go back to to that that statement I made earlier
2: of helping leaders prepare for the future of work, and obviously that's a larger umbrella. But you know when when we break that down, what that looks like is is helping leaders think through number one, what are the the the, the skills and competencies that they're going to need to be developing in order to future proof themselves and their businesses. They think you know three years, five years, ten years out. I always say we're, we're looking more what I would call near future observation. Near, near-term future studies. So some people, some futurists are looking 20, 30, 50 years out. We're looking, what, what's right around the corner? That's coin?
0: Masayushi Sun from SoftBank, right?
2: that that's exactly right that that's exactly a perfect example, and what we're looking is is three to five years what's because anything beyond that not not that it's not important and i and I think it's fascinating to look at that. I just so often found myself in rooms with futurists that were talking that far out and 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 oftentimes when people leave the room, they're like, you know that was really interesting but but you know what does that mean for my business tomorrow when I walk back into my office?" And I wanted to take this approach of what's around the corner that you can start to take action against tomorrow that will help you future-proof the business, help you attract great talent, retain great talent. How do you create high-performance cultures that can allow the business to create differentiation and separation in the marketplace so that they can compete and win? So, again, it's, it's, it's all – everything that we do is thinking in terms of that, you know, that, that CEO, owner-operator, leader inside some of the world's biggest brands what's top of mind for them so that they can stay relevant so that they can help their organizations continue to compete and win in the marketplace that's where we're playing
0: what is top of mind for them i mean what is this change that you're seeing for businesses well
2: i mean listen it's 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 everything that we're constantly hearing about all day long of of everything from artificial intelligence and machine learning and blockchain the, the, there's the technology change that's at place the digital transformation of every single organization every single industry and that is critically important where we have found an interesting little niche is looking at what i call the human element of digital transformation which is yes all of that technology is at play but if if you start to unpack where most organizations struggle with transformation inside of their organizations it always comes back to the people and the culture and being able to create an environment where people have they feel safe enough to experiment, to try new things, to speak up, to fail—an uh, uh, environment where they they feel the freedom to be able to you know experiment with new things—and when when that environment is not at play, when those ingredients are not there, it, it, transformation is impossible to create and and so we try to back leaders into a conversation of yes the techno we have to be paying attention to the technology trends but if we don't have a culture that is embracing of transformation, it's not going to happen, and so we'll unpack what that looks like. And it is big themes of psychological safety and freedom, and a big trend that we're now following is this theme of belonging. Uh, we had an opportunity to to study this trend with um, with Pat Waters these past six months. Pat is uh, now she's the chro at uh, Service Now, technology company based out of San Francisco, but she was m- more notably. Uh, the past CHRO at LinkedIn and one of the big discoveries that she made at LinkedIn uh, over the past decade was this theme of you know we're thinking about diversity and inclusion and how do you create a culture that's courageous enough to be innovative comes back to this theme of belonging if people don't feel like they belong and can and, and bring their most authentic self to their teams and to their organization, it's impossible for them to be able to really activate creativity inside themselves and bring that to the organization. And there's some fascinating new data around the ripple effect of when people don't feel like they belong, the impact it has on engagement and innovation across the culture.
0: Are you also talking about the newest members, so the youngest members having a say in how the company is run?
2: the the interesting thing about belonging is that it runs across the generations it's universal and it's global that was one of one of the interesting data points that they discovered at LinkedIn with this theme of belonging was that you now because at LinkedIn they obviously have they have really great insight around what all of us want in our work experience you know we're feeding them all of this data and they discovered that, that that feeling and desire to want to feel like we belong, it's so innately deep inside of us. It's tribal. Um, it's universal. It spans the generations. But certainly creating environments you know, where the next generations that are coming, that, that 22, 23-year-old, which, by the way, interestingly enough, is you know, that 23-year-old that's getting recruited out of university today, that's this next new generation term Gen Z I I so often find uh, leaders – we use the term millennials as this sort of catch-all term for young people in general. And I think what people often forget is that millennials today are approaching 40 years old. They're directors. They're vice presidents. They're running companies or divisions. They are not – the you know, the the quote unquote youngest team members inside of organizations say, that's that next new generation Gen Z. And we really want to be paying attention to that. And they certainly fall in that same camp of, you know, how quickly can we help them feel like they really matter and belong and can contribute in meaningful ways to teams and organizations in order to really get full engagement out of them.
0: How do organizations pitch themselves to this generation in order to attract the talent?
2: it's a, it's a great question one of the biggest things they have to do is much like individuals organizations you you have to know who you are at your core you know your values your ethos who are you and what are you about what is your value proposition Uh, your vision for where you're trying to go in the world. And, And I think the challenge that many organizations fall into is that they use buzzwords or terms that they think are going to appeal to not only the younger generation, but just a marketplace of talent. But then the second people actually step into the organization and start to experience the culture, they feel this massive gap, this massive divide between what they said they were and what they really are. And so it is... It's so important for leaders. It, it can't just be what are the buzzy words that we know people are going to want that will come to work here. It's how do we create an environment where people love to come to work, where they feel connected, they feel safe, they feel like they can belong, they feel like they matter. And the, I always tell people the greatest recruiting tool you have are your current employees, your current team members, because if you take care of them, if you create exceptional experiences for them, they will be the loudest Asset the you know the, the loudspeaker to the marketplace of talent to come and work there. In fact, when you when you encounter most great places to work, you know they don't have to they don't have to spend a lot of time on their recruiting efforts because they they've created this sort of ripple effect into the world that people want to come and work there. And that's possible for everyone. That that that's not only true for the apples and facebooks and et cetera of the world. That any organization can create that with intention and focus.
0: What about the concept of a corporation doing good for the world? I mean, wow. isn't that something that really appeals to the younger generations now? Because they're not really looking for the, the big corporate seat anymore one day with the, with the salary and the big bonuses. They want to be doing something for the planet or for humanity. <laughs>
2: They they definitely do, uh, and that was true for millennials, and we do see that with Gen Z. Although interestingly enough, if you look if we if we really look at the data and break it down, because Generation Z, one of the big uh, influencing factors shaping their personality and their lives was the economic recession of two thousand eight. And, and so one of the big differentiations between Gen Z and millennials is that Gen Z grew up in an environment uh, where th- nothing was promised, nothing was guaranteed, that many of them saw their older siblings underemployed, you know, four-year degrees working at Starbucks or, you know, coffee shops, not being able to get full-time employment. And so while they still have that idealism of wanting to make a positive impact on the world, there is also a, a, a realistic side of them, a safety side. Side of them that says you know find a good secure company a good job where you know you know that you're going to be taken, quote-unquote taken care of and that doesn't mean that they don't also want to do good for the world and and to bring that back specifically to your question of what about a corporation and the ethos and mindset of, of not only being about making a profit but you know being good to the world at the same time and of course that is a, a phenomenally in important and powerful concept the the realist of in me though says pushes back on that and that while lots of organizations like to tout that very very few live it all the way through and I think it's virtually impossible for publicly traded companies to be able to fully live that ethos simply because at the end of the day, the, the, unless you're, you have a leader like Jeff Bezos who literally tells the street, you know, you can think and do whatever you want, but these are the decisions that we're going to make. Um, they have to listen to the street, and, and what the street wants is growth and profit. At all costs, and and so when you start to break down decisions that will get made, of does this take into consideration and account for the well-being of our community, the well-being of our pro, uh, of our of our planet, uh, they will not trump profits in a publicly traded organization. I think leaders that are in that position have one of the most difficult tasks in the world today. If they have that that heart posture and that spirit, and that ethos of wanting to be able to do good and do well at the same time,
0: and that must have been a, a big demographic shift that you've seen over the last three years, because I know five years ago the millennials were all about doing something for the planet, and you had those social entrepreneurs breaking out all over the place. But I think that trend may be slowing down. Is that what you is that what you're seeing?
2: It, it, well, it, it's in, it's an interesting phenomenon. Even with millennials, as as millennials have aged. Uh, you know there there is this this interesting thing that we trend between life stage versus gener you know generational behavior Life stage will influence and impact every single generation what we mean by that is you may have a generation like millennials that were incredibly idealistic and you know want, I, I, I want to go to an organization where I can find meaning and purpose and that they do good in the world and that sort of youthful spirit you know really followed them into the workplace and of course organizations responded to that and it's not that it's been completely wiped out but you know ten and fifteen years later when there is now a mortgage and there There are, you know, the family is growing and there are mouths to feed and individuals have to make a choice of, do I go to work for an organization that maybe it doesn't, you know, it doesn't light me up. It's not my, my biggest passion. And maybe, you know, they're not the most socially conscious organization in the world, but it, but it provides security for myself and my family. And, and unfortunately at this exact moment, like I have to be willing to, uh, you know, accept that. That is certainly a trend that is forming. And, and unfortunately, you know, th- that's a reality that every generation, every individual faces as they move through these life stages. And so I think we're seeing a little bit of that effect as the millennials are coming of age and moving through this you know, family-having expansion life stage.
0: I want to talk to you about something you said to me three years ago, which is, James, my biggest problem when I'm doing a speech is I'm in competition with the iPhone. And this mm. is what every, the biggest danger is that people are going to tune mm. out, start checking yeah. emails and text messaging and things like that during your yeah. speech. Yeah. I look around today, wherever I am, and every young, you know, I'm talking under 18, young person in the restaurant or on a plane, wherever you are, they're just looking at a screen. How is this going to affect the world going forward in 20 years is everyone just going to be tuned out no conversations no human interaction actually happening anymore because noreena hertz is an economist that i work with out of london she's a mm-hmm. professor at ucl and she talks about generation k which i believe is the teenage generation right now and she says okay. top universities in the world are taking these generation k as into their uh, programs, and they're actually having to give them lessons on how to have a conversation with other class members because they've grown up with their face in a screen.
2: Sure. They've lost some of that. The, the interpersonal communication skills, the empathy skills uh, that come with you know, years of interacting with one another in the physical space. Listen, it's, an, it's, a, it's a fascinating question. Uh, we could spend five days doing research around it, and we'll find fifty different sources of research that are coming out on both sides of the argument. Um, I, I think it's difficult to say for certain what will happen, but we are we are watching a couple of trends. One, we know for sure that you know attention spans are getting smaller today. Everybody quotes the ridiculous quote of you know the average attention span today is you know a little over eight seconds which is one second more than a goldfish it's like everyone says that and it (laughs) it's 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 sort of ridiculous and and actually not true Uh, we have the ability to stay locked in on things today the challenge is as particularly as 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 speakers is that the stakes are higher you have to be more compelling in order to be able to hold people's attention now uh, we can certainly find examples of you know people who can uh hold hold a room for an for an hour which just through through the art of storytelling it is possible but what what is required of us as individual speakers today is to say not only do you have to be more compelling with your story and your insights but how can you make it more fun and engaging you know everything from you know we try to incorporate you know v- video and media and music and discussions and keep it fast paced because This is just how we're all living our lives today. Between screens and short soundbite information, uh, these are the experiences we have to create in that hour-long setting that we've never had to think about before. In terms of new skills being developed, to your point about organizations needing to train these younger people that are coming in how to leverage up and 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 level up their their interpersonal communication skills it's absolutely true but you know when we roll our eyes at that i always remind people it's really no different than you know, over the past 25 years when we had to train previous generations up on how to use technology. How do you use the computer? How do you use this new system? Younger generations are coming in today. You don't need to train them up on how to use the, you know your computer systems. In fact, most of our uh, systems that our organizations are run on, young people will come in and instantaneously know how to operate that. They don't need to be trained on that. What they need to be trained on, and we didn't make a big deal out of training previous generations up on technology. It was like, of course we do. They don't have these skills and 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 i find with our clients the organizations that fully embrace in that sort of onboarding process and early skill development for the young people that they bring in they're just like of course yeah like we're going to help them beef up some of their it's not that they don't have the capacity to be influential and have great communication skills uh we're just going to have to train that up a little bit and when we fully embrace that and don't try to fight that we create an environment that feels more open welcoming and and ultimately creates uh more high performance teams by embracing that
0: let's get back into your uh, speaking and, and how your book really propelled that? What changes do you see? Just talking to other speakers out there right now, if you write a book, what changes can they expect in their business?
2: You know, it's an interesting conversation. You know, I, I feel like when I started, it was the tail end of a very traditional run, uh, landscape and industry and that in order to really be, be a speaker you'll, you know and and certainly a break above a certain price point call that 10 or 15000 i mean i I I swear, everyone I talked to early on was like, you know, you could never get a price point above ten or fifteen thousand without a book. Well, there's certainly people that are are demonstrating that today. I think a great example of that is someone like Ryan Estes. Ryan Estes does not have a book, and you know, this is an individual who is one of the most in-demand sales and leadership speakers on the planet. You know, demanding a price point above thirty thousand. You say, well, how how has he done that without a book? That was completely unheard of five and ten years ago. And the reason he is is because it's not that he's not creating thought leadership he is he's just distributing it through more of the digital channels today and it's, so it's like he's had an ongoing blog for almost you know m- more than 10 years now where he's consistently wrote and cre- and created content on a, a daily or a weekly basis and so i think that's actually more important than a book is that you are consistently creating relevant thought leadership that is that adds value to people's lives. That's no longer a barrier to entry. Um, the mindset simply needs to be, well, why are you writing the book? Why are you doing any of this? And all of it has to be about adding value and creating content that is useful to the marketplace and the people that you're trying to build relationships with.
0: That, that is interesting actually. I was not aware of the fact that books are no longer a great step up the ladder.
2: I mean, some you know. Some people may argue with me. Some people may say, you know, that, well, you know, that's not true because, uh, you know, I wrote a book and it became a New York Times bestseller, and because of that book, it got me on TV shows and and and, and interesting partnerships and collaborations, etc. And and that can be true for many people.
0: It's a great calling card.
2: It's a it's a great calling card, um, but the re, but the but the reality is is the number of people that go on to become new york times best selling authors is so small and that's not to say that you shouldn't you know if, if that's your dream or your goal you sh- you shouldn't go for it but if you think that, that like that's that's just going to be the natural path uh, i i think that's a fallacy and i think that you know if you feel compelled to write a book and you and and that happens for you great more power to you all the way uh, but more importantly, we just need to be rooted in this mindset of how do I create value and serve my marketplace in the, in the highest way possible.
0: Seth, before we wrap up this, I want to ask you about your personal presentation, because the content and all of that is is great. And I think a lot of people out there trying to become speakers have a great message. However... You are probably the most stylish guy on a stage. And I frequently, get, I frequently get, I get complaints from audience members. He's not even wearing socks in a suit. Who are your top designers that you go to? Where do you get your you ideas are. from?
2: You are you're so funny. That, that, thank you for acknowledging that. You know, it is sort of a a part of y- your your brand statement. You know, if 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 you look good, you play good, and if you play good, they pay good, as Dion Sanders would say. Um, I I have fallen in love with a, a suit brand uh, a, a maker called Issaia, which is I S A I uh, A, an Italian suit manufacturer uh, tailor, and um, it just you know it's a combination of it just it just it fits right it's fun they've got great patterns great fabrics and you try to find this balance in that you don't want whatever you're wearing to be a distraction to your audience it is a happy medium of you wear something that makes you feel confident and fun and and ready to go deliver at the highest level but simultaneously not something that i don't want the audience to be looking at my jacket or that shirt and to be so distracted by that because it's a crazy color or a pattern that they can't hear the message i'm trying to deliver interestingly enough over the years like it has sort of become a little bit of a a calling card and people sort of expected, like oh you know it was it was curious what you were going to wear and it became this thing that i never expected it to be in the beginning
0: and now it is part of your real brand i love it it looks great thank you seth thank you so much for coming on the show
2: james thanks for having me it's been a blast
0: you've been listening to the light switch podcast hosted by me james robinson please feel free to share this and other episodes on your social media and why not follow us on Instagram? Our handle is at Robinson Speakers. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. And why not subscribe to the Lightswitch newsletter and follow us on the Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. Thank you again for your support. And of course, for listening. I hope you found it interesting.